Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hello everyone, my name is Grace and I'm the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe. If you have not already joined us in the cafe, I would like to personally invite you to our community. We have so many awesome things going on this month. We have totally revamped our writing group program to include a writing group marketplace where you can browse open writing groups or decide to create your own. At the beginning of the month, we launched the 500 Club, which is an exclusive accountability group that challenges you to write 500 words a day over a two week or a month long commitment. Finally, this month we launched weekly communal word sprints that are open to all crafters. As of this moment, we have four sprints happening per week and we are ranking out words. If you're interested in joining our community, you can find us online at storycraft.cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot C-A-F-E. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to another Dog Days of Summer edition of the Storycraft Cafe podcast. Over at storycraft.cafe, we have a number of live events that we're hosting that we focus on craft-specific topics from professionals in the publishing industry. And we recently hosted Jeff Wheeler for a, a great talk and a Q&A, and uh, we have the audio from that for you today. Uh, so strap in and get ready to hear from a very successful fantasy author talk all about world building and character development and all of the great stuff that goes into fantasy writing but before we get over to jeff wheeler let's hear from jenny colgan talk about writing holiday stories and that may seem odd for this time of year but if you're planning on publishing a book for this uh, end of the year holiday season, now might be the time to start thinking about it. Let's hear from Jenny and then over to our special talk with Jeff Wheeler. Well, some people, I've got two friends, one who uh, would write the Christmas, Doctor Who Christmas special every year, and one who made a couple of Christmas albums, and they both did it in the summer because you need longer to do it. And so they'd be working on it in the summer and going, oh my goodness, I'm so hot, I'm trying to write about Christmas. Whereas actually I find that I always write them, I'm writing one now and I'll start it about now and I'll finish it in January when everything is done. That, you know, unless I'm surrounded, like Edinburgh, uh, where I am at the moment, has a Christmas market. And I was cycling into town yesterday and cycled past it and you could smell the mulled wine and the sausages and you can hear people on the, you know, on the kind of helter-skelter screaming and, and going round and round and all the things you forget about this time of year. You know, I, I find it really helpful to be in it. Um, and it's also very helpful if it's a time of year that you like, which is <laughs> the time of year I absolutely love. So yeah, I, I have to be in the atmosphere of Christmas and you know, it's a big, big deal in the UK really. I, I've spent uh, a lot of time in America and you don't really get started till after Thanksgiving because you have a big family holiday. Um, whereas in the, in the UK, you know, you, you have Guy Fawkes, which is the 5th of November, which is bonfire night, and then bang, you're into Christmas all the way. <laughs> it's a very serious business. So um yeah, I like to be in in the mood. Welcome once again to the Storycraft Cafe. I'm your host, Hank Garner. Today, I am super excited to have a great old friend of mine, Jeff Wheeler, is here on the show to talk about writing fantasy. Uh, Jeff is one of the most prolific and successful fantasy writers that I know, and I was super excited when he agreed to come on the show. Jeff has a brand new book out. It's called The Druid. It's the first in a new series, is that right, Jeff? It's it's the first it's sort of, the of new a new series. series. It's part of my Muirwood universe. So right, it's a new series in an existing universe. Is that fair to yes, say? Yes, that is fair. 
Um, Jeff, how many how many books is this for you now? What, uh, 80, 90, 100? <laughs> well, we're in the 30s, in so the 30s. close. Yeah. But I, I, every time I get asked, I don't keep track. I have to yeah. kind of like look at the bookshelf and like count. <laughs> but I know we're past 30. And uh, that's kind of it's more than I ever thought I'd be doing in my career. And I still have more ideas. So this is good. More ideas right. is always uh, the right answer. That's the answer that you want to have anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I just hope I live long enough to be able to write down all the stories that are jumbling around in my head. So, you know, that that has been uh, the answer that I've gotten more more than not is that, um, you know, once you get your writing career started, then you start realizing it, it's kind of like collecting books. You know, like I'll there comes a point when you realize I'll never have enough years in my life to read all the books that I've collected. You know, it's kind of that way with stories. In <laughs> or your download head. it on my Kindle. That's or every time download another one. I'm like, yeah, am I ever going to get to that one? But yeah, I, I think we all can relate to that. <laughs> and, and Kindle Unlimited, um, you know, what a what a blessing it has been for for book lovers and and what a, a curse it is in the same uh, because I flipped through my Kindle and go, oh my gosh, I, I downloaded that three years ago. <laughs> I've never <laughs> opened it. And you're like, oh, am I horrible or you know, am I um, obsessed? Maybe some of each. Well, um, I have a lot of my readers thank me for being having like all of my titles are on Kindle Unlimited because it saves them so much money. It's like right. 30 books times, you know, it's like, oh, as long as you can read fast, you know, you can right. that, that, that subscription like pays for itself if you yes. uh, if you keep at it. So it's a good deal. Well, and and speak, I'm glad you brought that up because um, Kindle Kindle Unlimited has gone through a bit of a change in the last couple of years in that now we're including audiobooks in uh, for a lot of titles and they're not all titles, but a lot of titles, I think some of yours, uh, the Druid is even uh, it's a Kindle unlimited. And if you're a Kindle unlimited subscriber, you can listen you get to the, the audio, audio as well. Yeah. That's yeah. a great deal. It is a great deal. Um, the, when, since your books um, are, are translated into audio right off the bat and, and are part of this deal where you can listen, uh, you know, that that's a big draw for a lot of readers. Um, with that being the, the fact of publishing right now, does that factor into your writing at all, knowing that one of the main forms of distribution for your book is going to be an audio? Do, does that affect your writing at all, knowing that that the audio book is going to be probably very popular for your uh, readers? It's a really interesting question, and and it does, but maybe not in the way you might think. Okay. Um, so I, I work with an amazing narrator who's who's narrated most of my books. Her name's Kate right. Rudd, and and the the amount of downloads, you know, because I, I working for, you know with Amazon Publishing, I get I get to see behind the curtain, right? right. I, I, I know my sales weekly, daily, monthly, right? And so I can see the change in percentage of how many more people are listening to them now. But the way it changes it, when I'm actually writing the book, I'm writing it knowing that Kate is going to be narrating it. And so I will throw in things just for <laughs> her because she acts the roles of the characters. Right. And so if I, if I want her to use an inflection in her voice, I'll write it into the, the manuscript because she picks up on those cues. And then when she performs the character, she will include the emotion or, or whatever I'm trying to, to, to get at in the dialogue. So knowing that, an, a narrator is going to be narrating actually influences the way I write because, you know, I might not do it a certain way, but knowing it, I, I end up, you know, adding those little, little things in there because when I listen to the book later and I hear those, it's like, yeah, I did that on purpose. <laughs> I love that because I've asked that question um, to some people before and they're like, no, I don't, I don't factor audiobooks in at all. That's, you know, that's not even a thing I think about. And I love that you do think about that and that factors into the way that you write things. That's so much fun. That adds another layer, you know, to the stories. That's great. Um, J Jeff, what was your introduction to fantasy? I, you know, you are knee deep in, in fantasy writing now, but uh, what was it that got you as a fan into fantasy? 
you know, there's there's two answers. There's two books that um, that kind of was, was my springboard because I tried fantasy in elementary school. Um, I I had tried to get into it, but, but it was the Chronicles of Perdane by Lloyd Alexander. Yes. And so I remember a fellow student gave a book report on the Book of Three, which is the first book in that series. And and he made it sound so interesting. And then I, I tried reading it, but I was like in fourth grade and I wasn't a really great reader back then. Yeah. But just his enthusiasm made it a little bit infectious to me. So I ended up reading that whole series, loved it. And then I started dabbling with other fantasy books. Like I couldn't get into Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, read The Hobbit, I think. Didn't really like it. Read uh, Chronicles of Narnia. It wasn't, was, but it wasn't until junior high that I found Terry Brooks. And I was just going through the fantasy shelf at, at my junior high library. And I happened to grab, uh, you know, one of the Shannara books. Wasn't even the first one. Oh, wow. <laughs> Grabbed it off the shelf, started reading it, thought I've got this whole thing figured out. And then by chapter three, he'd blown up all of my theories to, to dust. <laughs> and it's funny because just this week, you know, summer vacation, you know, my kids, we have kind of reading goals for them. It's like, hey, you got to read before you play electronics. And so my my youngest son is a voracious reader. And he's like, well, I'm throwing out suggestions to him. And he's like, read it, read it, read it, read it twice, you know. And I'm like, Terry Brooks. He's like, no, I haven't. So I pulled a copy of Sword of Shannara off the shelf place it in front of him. I'm like, okay, read it. I'm like, I don't know if he's going to like it because back then there's a lot of maybe info dumping at the beginning. And I yes. thought, is he going to get you know bored because of all these monologues that are happening? Right. But after that afternoon, I looked back, he was already on page 110. He, oh, wow. he blown past that. I'm like, oh, this is good. So it's really weird that he's the age I was when I started reading Terry Brooks and it's just, right. it was kind of this full circle moment, but it was Terry that, that, that made me think not only do I love fantasy, but I want to be able to write this someday. Right. I, I had a very similar experience that I was um, uh, exposed to Terry Brooks kind of early on. And then in later years, getting to know Terry Brooks and getting to talk with him. What, what a sweet guy. I mean, just, salt to the earth just exactly who you wanted him to be and you know they, they say don't meet your heroes but uh terry is one of those guys that that definitely holds up with what you think about him no I, he's been a mentor of mine i've taken writing classes from him uh he even did a blurb for one of my books oh how cool and that, that was like i mean i i was too embarrassed to ask him so i asked my editor to ask him <laughs> <laughs> he said yes. And he gave me just the nicest blurb for my book, Night's Ransom. And I, I just made my day. And I, I've been yeah. to Comic-Con with him, but on panels with him. And I'm like, I shouldn't be here with him. He's like, you know, <laughs> he, he's a wizened guy who's been this forever. But he's he is truly a gracious, wonderful man. So, yeah. Well, speaking of the differences in fantasy, uh, you know, from almost 50 years ago when the sword of Shannara was, was published 40 something thereabouts. Um, and you, I would consider you a modern fantasy writer. You, you've published all of your books in the last, in the last 15 years for sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and compared that with like the sword of Shannara where you're absolutely right. And I've talked to, with Terry about this, you know, you go, 75 pages and nothing really happens. You know, there's a lot of exposition, like you said, a lot of world building. It's it's immersive for sure, but there's there's not a, a great inciting incident right up front. Um, whereas nowadays when you're telling, uh, you know, an, an adventure story for sure, you know, fantasy, um, you kind of need to give readers something pretty close to upfront to grab their attention and and to hurl them into your world. Um, how do you feel about the way fantasy is now versus then? And is it, is it, um, you know, are there things that you think about, you know, when, when you're beginning a book, I need to have this happen, this happen. Um, you know, how, how do you start thinking about kicking off a book and getting people immersed in your story and then your world? Um, it, it's, that's an awesome question. And what was, what was acceptable or the norm for fantasy or literature and literature in general, right. you know, 40 years ago is different than now you, you, you do have to be able to throw people into the story. Um, 
I, I grew up probably like you with Star Wars, and I still yes. remember sitting in the movie theater when I was a little kid, you know, watching a Star Destroyer fly overhead where they threw you into the action. Right. And, and I've always loved adventure stories like that, you know, um, whether it's science fiction or, or fantasy. And so for my books, you know, I, I, I do spend time thinking about what, especially that first chapter, it's like, where in the story is it, are we going to start? Is this going to be a flashback scene? Is this going to be the middle of it? I really try to, to come up with that, that introductory scene that's going to hook the reader in as soon as possible. So uh, although I write fantasies, part of me, what I write is thrillers too. Right? Right. <laughs> you really want to try to keep a fast pace. I don't, you know, I've had some readers say like, you should write an 800 page epic fantasy. I can't do that. That's not the way my mind works. That's not the way my stories come. It tend, they tend to be more fast paced and pull you in real quick. And I will do time jumps in between books so that I don't have to have all these extra chapters that are slowing things down because right. I, I really, I really want my readers to be able to just keep turning the pages and hardly be able to put the book down. And I think that's more expected today. Yeah. And yeah. maybe we're just, we didn't have as many, uh, um distractions back then there weren't as many you know weren't as many cool movies weren't as many exciting video games weren't as many things that that are able to hook a teenager's attention that you know when you had hours to kill why not read a book now books are competing with other forms of entertainment and so right. i i just want to make sure i write i write a kind of book that readers of all ages are going to be able to to grasp and hang on to which means you got to get to the action pretty quick Right. Uh, Jeff, you have one of the uh, most awesome publishing stories. Uh, you began as an indie author, uh, then was courted by Amazon Publishing. And, and now you, you publish uh, a good many of your books with Amazon um, as your publisher, uh, but it, they tend to run sort of a hybrid house. It's, it's a lot of the benefits of self-publishing while having the monstrous power of Amazon behind you for marketing and, and all of that. What, what was, what got you into writing first off? Um, what, what was that, that first story that, that you had to write? You know, um, my first stories I actually wrote in high school and they weren't fantasy at all. They were probably, I would categorize them as either historical thrillers or, you know, political thrillers. Um, and for me, it was, you know, just sinking my teeth into, I was into comic books back then. I just, I wanted to, to write stories that would, you know, get me excited and, and make an audience excited. So, you know, th that's how I, that's how I began. It wasn't until college um, that I had decided to, you know, switch to fantasy. And, and the reason was with a fantasy world, you can make stuff up. Like I, I found with my historical things, it's like I was doing so much research to just to make sure it was accurate. Um, right, right. But with fantasy, you have a lot of leeway to, to not be constrained by what actually happened um, in, in history. So that's kind of, to me, you know, I've always, I've always been a storyteller. Like I would used to sit at my grandpa's backyard in Utah with my cousins and I would tell stories like for hours sometimes. Um, so telling stories has, has been part of my DNA for a, a long, long time. And I just found that um, writing was that was that vehicle. So in high school, like my siblings would be watching cartoons. I'd be up in my room on a, on a computer typing up chapters of a story. And I could, I wrote like five novels while I was in high school. Wow. wow. Um, so what was the first story that broke you into publishing? Um, Self-publishing or with yeah, 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 the, Amazon? The, yeah, the first thing that you published as, as an indie author. Um, so I actually published a children's story, a uh, hardcover children's story, uh, like back in 1999, like wow. that was before self-publishing was a pretty big deal. There weren't a lot of tools. I had to hire an artist, uh, editors, funded all myself, sold horribly. I still have a box of copies in my garage um, that, that that never sold because I what I realized is I, I you know while I could I could produce a book, yeah. I couldn't um, produce the the infrastructure of the publishing industry. Right. right. The storage and the distribution and the connections with bookstores and all those things. And so 
I, I tried that didn't work. And I, I realized, okay, I need to, you know, I need to kind of build an audience. And so I actually created a, a magazine with some friends called deep magic, where we would publish people's short stories, including mine. Cause I thought, Hey, let me create this free magazine, e- e- electronic yeah. magazine to be able to find readers. And that worked pretty good. And then I used that as a vehicle to launch my first uh, two fantasy books. But again, you know, this was before social media was around. Right, People right. would have to find us, hear about it word of mouth. Um, and it just, it was, it took a lot of time to, to create this. And so we ended up shutting it down because it took up so much time. I wasn't writing books. And so it was literally, you know, years of doing that before I said, let me try the traditional route. And so I wrote the first Muirwood series, tried to get an agent, got turned down 40 sometimes, and then was like, okay, I get the traditional path, the doors closed. Maybe I go and try self-publishing again. I've got an audience, a little bit of an audience. I, I fostered through deep magic. Uh, and then I started that approach. And now social media was there to be able to help people uh, share things. And that, that's when things started to move a little bit. And it was that self-publishing effort that is what put me on the radar screen in Amazon Publishing. Because they had just created their own publishing companies. Right. And they did like thrillers and mysteries and romance. And they finally got around to my favorite fantasy. <laughs> and they said, well, who are some of the self-publishing you know, fantasy authors out there? Maybe we can recruit some of them to come in. So they reached out literally to me about 10 years ago. Wow. And it's like, it just amazes me 10 years later. It's like 10 years ago this month, I signed my publishing contract um, with Amazon Publishing. And had no idea the adventure that was awaiting for me the last 10 years. Would you say um, that the Kindle revolution was was part of the the sea change that happened, you know, from from publishing that book in 99 where you had no infrastructure, uh, you had to build everything uh, to to get anything accomplished from from the, the writing to the assembling to the publishing to the marketing all of that was squarely on your shoulders. Did did the 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 advent of the Kindle and then um, Amazon kind of getting behind that and building this infrastructure where people could come and you know having a platform where people could upload their books and then sell those and then you had a you know the perfect delivery mechanism with the Kindle and then you know the the, the ability to load the Kindle app onto iPads and iPhones and Android phones and and it was was that kind of the thing that turned the tide in publishing. It it absolutely did. And it was, was, it's kind of like when the U S government decided to build freeways all over the United States, right? You put in the infrastructure and then the, the, it allowed the businesses to be able to be created. So I, I was, I was definitely part of that. Um, The Kindle at first um, was helpful, but it wasn't the only platform uh, that was there at the time there were there. And so, people would use a company called Smashwords to be able to get your digital content on across many of the different things. For me, it was KDP, right? So not only was the Kindle available, but the KDP infrastructure, the Kindle direct publishing that allowed it. And, and it was just, it was brand new. And the other, the other thing I think that was a phenomenon back then more that really started like binge, you know, people were binge watching, like, you know, uh, television shows, series, like, like people weren't happy waiting a week for the next episode to drop. And then suddenly you yeah, could start yeah. getting, you could like binge an entire season and they started doing that with books too. So for me, the, the, the fact that when I self-published Mirrorwood, I published all three books at the same time and put it out on the Kindle platform. And then through KDP, they allowed you to give away the books for free. And so I said, let me just give away the first book for free. Yeah, And I, I did it right at the time that, that KDP was allowing that to happen. And because that happened, readers could not only grab the first book, but they could immediately download the second book, finish that one, immediately download the third book. And so I gave the first one away for free, but I made money on books two and three. And then they started telling all their friends. And so suddenly you could grab all three books at once. And so I think it was a mix of the trend binge reading as well as having the infrastructure available through the Kindle that allowed just sales to happen. I didn't need to be in every bookstore in the United States. Readers in Israel and England and 
Australia and other continents were discovering me because they were having friends telling them about it. And that word of mouth just allowed it to happen. You were uh, utilizing uh, magnets and reader funnels and all of those things before those were, were buzzwords and, and, yeah. and phrases used in publishing. That's awesome. Um, did, the um, a, a lot of people would look at that uh, strategy of publishing a whole trilogy at once and, and recognize that as a strategy that that people use now and, and try to utilize to, to get buzz going and, and all of this sort of stuff. Did, did you have any idea that that was going to create the, the kind of traction that you eventually got uh, or did you just happen to have a finished trilogy? Like, was this, was this a plan from the beginning or, you know, you just happened to have what you needed and, and, you know, struck gold. <laughs> Serendipity, uh, divine yeah. intervention. There's a lot of, um, it's just interesting because I had, you know, after I'd written the first book of the Mirrorwood series, you know, I'd started going to agents, but I didn't stop. I'm like, well, I'm excited to write book two. Let me start writing book two. And, and so, you know, cause the querying process takes a long time. You wait for, agents to get back to you and then you send out the next batch and i, I did have one agent that requested a, a, a full manuscript and i really thought i'm like this is it like and i and yeah. you know they wanted the whole thing you know little snippet at first then send us the first three chapters and send us the whole thing and like, this is it and and six months down the road i got the rejection letter and it was like, you know, but so, but I, I hadn't stopped writing. So I still had books two and book three. And what was kind of my clue for, for me is I, you know, my early readers, like my niece and my sister and uh, some family members, they were all asking me, can I share this with my friends? And I'm like, no, no, I don't want the book going out into the world. You know, I, just, I wanted to have control over it. And so I was very selective. Okay, you can share it with this one person. You know, you can you can share it with this one person. And, and it was everybody I shared it with kept wanting to share it with somebody else. And that, that kind of gave me the confidence as a writer to be like, yeah. wow, I'm not asking people to read it. They're asking me. And then a, a friend of mine from high school through Facebook reached out to me and said, you know, hey, Jeff, I've been following your, your publishing journey. Can I read, you know, your, 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 your book? I just haven't, you know, it's not published. It's not on the world. Can I, I just would love to read it and see what's going on. So I sent her a copy of it. And two days later, she's like, can I have book two? And it's like, <laughs> sure. Send her book two. One day later, she's like, where's book three? I'm like, I'm not done writing it yet. She's like, well, hurry up and get that third book written. So. Oh, my goodness. I hadn't, sorry, I hadn't stopped writing. And so that by the time the, the agent thing had, and had, the doors had closed there and then Kindle was starting to come and then KDP was starting, I happened to have three books done. So was that serendipity? The, the fact that I just hadn't stopped writing as part of the discipline as a writer, it's like, I'm yeah. just always going to write a new chapter every week. Just, and if I, if I do that, I can write a book a year. That's kind of what I, the benchmark I'd given myself. And I just didn't stop. And now I, instead of writing one chapter a week, I write three chapters a week. So I can do three books a year, at least maybe four, uh, some years. And I've just kept that cadence going um, ever since I left my day job. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I love that story so much. Um, and as you mentioned, um, Amazon spun up their own publishing houses, uh, uh, 47 North, um, and you've been publishing with them uh, for a while now. What, what does what is it like to have the power of Amazon behind you as a as a publisher that that has to be, uh, you know, you 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 maintain control of your stuff, yet you have, you know, this the big guy on the block helping with everything that's got to be. That's got to be the best of all worlds. Well, it is the best of all worlds. Um, it, it is like working with a, a traditional publisher. Like I don't have final say on my covers. Um, 
there's there's lots of you know even the titles of the books is a is a is a negotiation because they're really smart like yeah. i had a i had a, an idea for a book title and they're like jeff nobody's gonna be able to spell that and type it into the search on amazon to find it it's like yeah that's true so they're they're really smart and they have a really good marketing team and they've got great publicists that have gotten traditional book reviewers like publishers weekly and book lists and review my books and so it's 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 hybrid but it's more traditional now it's a lot harder to get in you need an agent to get with amazon publishing yeah, yeah. now it's very they don't they're not looking for for people the same way they were at the very beginning so the timing again um it was very, it was there, but I, I wish I could explain because a lot of it's just confidential. I, I know the different marketing levers they have to pull. Sure. sure. It is so powerful. And every other publisher out there wishes they had that. It's like, yeah, everybody knows about Kindle daily deals and, you know, or book bub, you know, newsletters where you can pay to have this book appear in a newsletter and your sales bump up for a couple of days. Yeah, I get that too, but I get stuff that the rest of the world doesn't get. And I know what it is. I, I've seen it in action. I can see the results on my dashboard uh, for book sales. And um, But ultimately, the best way to sell a book is word of mouth, right? Sure. <laughs> write a good book. And because you, because there's authors that they've used their tools on that haven't sold. And so, you know, it's not, you know, everything they pick up isn't a guaranteed success. Ultimately, the best books sell. And, and, and that's what I've always tried to do is how do I keep increasing uh, my skills as a writer? And how do I keep attracting new readers uh, to to give me a try and, and not just do 15 book series. I always tried doing new things to invite new people in and, 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 and see what they, which one they're going to like the best. Let's talk Let's writing talk for writing. just a minute, um, Jeff. So with a, a series like Muir Wood, um, at one moment in time, nothing about that existed. It, it, it didn't exist at all. And then either a character walked onto the stage of your mind and you started wondering who is this character and what are they up to? Or maybe you thought of a, an epic plot point and you, like, oh, this would be fun to put a character through this. And then, you know, you start casting this story in your mind with characters that you make up or, or, or maybe you have read something that that triggered the what if game in your mind. And then at that point, the, the moment of inspiration, then this book, this whole series does exist. Uh, and then it's your job as the writer to kind of excavate those stories and to dig them out of the ground and then polish them up. And, um, and you know, then this whole event of creation has happened. What What is that first moment of inspiration like for you? Oh, this is, this is so fun to talk about. Cause I know, I know the people who are going to be watching and listening to this later are writers like me and, and we all have different experiences with it. And, and, and you, t- you use the metaphor of excavating the, the, the metaphor I like is sculpting. Cause like you know, you, you get a big block of stone, like Michelangelo, you know, making David and he can see David in the stone and he's just chipping away to kind of reveal what's there. And, right. and, and for me, sometimes it's like the book's already written. It's, it's like, it's like the, it's like the future's talking to me. It's like, this book's there. I just have to actually now put words on the page to reveal what's something that already exists in the, in the future. So that's kind of the way I've, I've looked at it. Um, my process, the way I, the way I do it is I don't start writing the book right away. Um, there's a, a quote from a Roman philosopher named Ovid. And um, he, he basically says a new idea is delicate, right? Um, it can be, you know, it, it's very delicate. You've got to handle it delicately. It can be you know, blown away. In fact, I, I have a copy of this quote. My, um, my publisher gave me this little uh, notebook with my favorite quote on it is just as a publishing present. So rather than just trying to butcher the quote, let me just read it. It says a new idea is delicate. It can be killed by a sneer or a yawn. It can be stabbed to death by a quip, 
and worried to death by a frown on the right man's brow. And when I read when I read that quote from Ovid, who was somebody that inspired Shakespeare, right? Ovid's works inspired Shakespeare and all of us, like uh, Terry Brooks for me, uh, Terry Brooks was inspired by um, other authors, uh, Ian Forster, there's other authors that we're all inspired by somebody else. But for me, when that new idea comes, I don't try writing it right away. Um, usually what I do, whether it's a passage in a book, a scene in a movie, uh, a, a place I visited, a, a scene from history, what, what, wherever that inspiration came from, I'll write it down. I'll send myself a little email and I'll, I've got a special little folder where I put those kinds of emails and I'll just sit on it. And I'll just let that, that, that idea germinate and incubate in my brain for a while. And then I'll, I'll, when it's time to pick a new series, I'll go through that email folder and I'll go, which one's developed? Like, it's like walking through a, a greenhouse, you know, and like, yeah. which, which plant's been developed? And, 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 oh, this one's still very small. And this one's sprouted a couple branches. And, and I'll kind of wander through the garden and see which one do I feel like tackling next. But I always give it that incubation period. And, and some, that incubation period is years and sometimes it's just months. Sometimes I'm so excited uh, to write it that I'll let it incubate for a couple of months before I go through my process of developing it and, and building bones around it and coming up with a plot structure and characters and, and things like that. So sometimes that process is short. Sometimes it's very long. But I always go through that process. and But I always capture that idea because when those I, those little flashes of inspiration come, it's like this could be turned into a book someday. Sometimes it's a nightmare. <laughs> and I'll wake up and I'm like, that was horrifying. And I'll write it down and I'll send that email to myself. And sometimes even those nightmares can turn into a book. Um, fantasy is one of those genres that uh, immediately conjures up um, uh, imaginations. When, when you tell someone I'm a fantasy writer, some people will think I write about dragons and, uh, you know, and, and knights that, you know, are, are uh, rescuing princesses, or maybe they'll think Stephen King and some um, otherworldly creatures. And and all of those things can fit under fantasy. And we've got lots and lots of subgenres that have, um, you know, developed over the years. Where would you, if someone had never heard of you or your books, where would you tell them, uh, what, how would you describe your flavor of fantasy? <laughs> well, I have different flavors. Uh, my most predominant would be probably traditionally labeled as epic fantasy because they take place in a different world that's not this one. Um, some people think, oh, you're YA, you're young adult, because I have a large YA fan base. I also have a large 80-year-old plus fan base. So um, that's, again, one of the neat things about being able to see behind the curtain is I know my readership demographics. I know the percentages of male and female. I know the age bracket. And my age bracket is almost uniform across the spectrum, wow. which is highly unusual because usually you might you might hit one group and and you might peak in that group but mine's pretty evenly distributed across so i get email fan mail from a, a wide range of people so uh, it, it it can feel ya because i don't have a lot of you know i have sex or swearing or like horrible gore in, in my books because i want my kids to be able to read my stuff um and so People think maybe you're just YA, but no, I've got my, my readership is, is across the spectrum. But uh, Epic is, is there, but I have a series that uh, feels a little steampunk, but the category is actually called Gas Lamp. So something that's more of a Regency era, but not, using, not requiring technology, it uses magic. And so I didn't even know that existed until my brother's like, no, this is Gas Lamp. I'm like, oh, that's a thing. Okay. <laughs> so there's all these different categories which are which are used and are very helpful in the, Am the Amazon algorithms to be able to categorize where these books land. So that way, um, readers can find like and like books to be able to know, OK, maybe if I like this kind of thing, I might like Jeff as well. Jeff, um, speaking of magic, um, how do you determine where to use magic and what the appropriate um, what the appropriate usage is and the appropriate scenarios where magic can can come in. Um, uh, 
we know that in a lot of fantasy magic sort of takes the place of technology in a way, or maybe um, uh, societies don't evolve in the same way because of magic. Um, but there are also plot uh, ways that plot develops because magic is available or you may choose to withhold um some of the things that magic could do. I guess what I'm asking is, is how do you decide um, who to give that power to and when? <laughs> it's an awesome question. And and there's, there's classes people teach, right? Brandon Sanderson has one of them that, that talks about magic and stuff. And, and I like to, I like to look at it in a more, in a pretty simple thing. The, the story needs to be compelling. And it's not compelling if the magic can solve every problem easily with, without any weaknesses. So my magic systems always have to have downsides uh, to it. Uh, so that way and they don't, it doesn't easily come along to solve uh, every problem. It's really about what, what, what brings people into stories, especially fantasy, isn't just the magic system. Uh, it's the characters, right? Yeah. If, you, if, if you didn't have Ron you know, Harry and Hermione, you know, Hogwarts sounds interesting, but it, we, we see it and it becomes interesting because we're experiencing it through the lives of the characters. Right. And so I'm much more interested in the character development side, but I've got need to make sure that, especially since I'm doing fantasy, that there, there's, there's magic there. And so in each of the different worlds that I've created, uh, I, I, I have to come up with what are kind of the rules who has access to the magic, who can be good at it, who's bad at it, who's, who's, who's not allowed to use it because that is a great way of increasing tension. Uh, in my Muirwood world, if you, if you, if, if you are an orphan who doesn't know their parents, like you're not allowed to mess with the magic yet. These are I have characters that are, have affinity for it. And it's like, well, they're not allowed, you know, and then so it's a, it's being restricted that adds tension, which is something I'm always trying to do. So in each of the worlds, I, I do try to come up with what are the powers, what can happen with it, and 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 what are the different pros and cons that exist with it. Similarly to the technology of the time too, because you know each even in a fantasy world, there's technology. It's like, are there clocks? You know, how do they travel? How do they get from point A to point B? So understanding the technology and the world is important to understand too so like i have to figure all those elements out uh, before i even start writing the story one thing that's been uh that i've seen uh one interesting way to tie magic to character development that i've seen in the past is to have magic come at a cost um like instead of just having um people with limitless power who can just pull off anything they want um there has to be um, a cost that comes with using uh, magic. And I know that, that um, like you said earlier, that there, there, there's a downside to magic sometimes. Um, do you, when, when developing a magic system and thinking about the characters that you're going to create, um, do those things factor in like what, what the magic is going to, how it's going to affect people, not only just to get them out of binds or whatever, but you know, what, what's going to be the fallout of, of using these powers? Absolutely. I think of that. And I, I probably um, learned that the most from the Terry Brooks school. So that, that first book of his that I read was called The Elf Stones of Shannara. Yes. And and the main character has these elf stones that are supremely powerful, except for because he doesn't have a strong elven blood, he struggles to use them. And when he uses them, it hurts. Like there's a, there's, he feels something changing inside of him that doesn't feel good. That feels negative. And that negative reaction becomes a block for him to be able to summon their powers. I love that. Right. Because it's not just, Hey, he's the hero because he can use the stones to wipe out the bad guys. But then it's suddenly it's like, Oh, I have to use it. Or, or he struggles to use it. And here comes the danger and they don't work. And I, I love that about you know, Terry's writing and stuff, that there is that cost uh, that, that, that comes in there. And so I, I, I definitely come more from that school where, it, where magic might, the ability of magic might be, might be huge, but its impact on the people who use it 
it comes with it comes with uh, either emotional costs or physical costs that drains them uh, as something that happens that they're like, I'm not sure that this is the, you know, the right thing, but I absolutely, you know, conceive of that as, as part of my storylines. Eileen just commented, I had, I just had to write an entire scene about how the bathroom works in my fantasy work. And yeah, that's when, when you, uh, when you commit to that level, then that, that can bring, uh, depth uh to your fantasy work um yeah that's the finding uh finding what things to elaborate on in your worlds and what things to just let people gloss over and figure out for themselves um when you start thinking of a new world like mirrorwood for instance um do you start uh i guess what what i'm do, how much do you sketch out the world ahead of time so that when you start writing, you know, kind of the rules of the world and, and the boundaries of the world, or, or does it just develop as you write the story? Um, my, my process is different now than it was when I first started. I always have tried to um, center the idea in a, in a period of maybe history that I, I happen to know something about or a culture that I happen to know something about. Um now I go through a more formal process because I, I do this for a living where I look at, I, I really look at all the vectors of politics, religion, geography, economics, you know, I, I look at all those kind of socioeconomic things to say, okay, what, how do, you know, how do these things exist? So even in my new book, The Druid, which is kind of a medieval fantasy, you know, one of the, it's about the founding of Muirwood Abbey and you know, the readers of the, of the, of the books who've already read it, it's like, Oh, they know the industry that Mirrorwood Abbey had, because even a medieval Abbey had to have an industry in order to be be self-sufficient. It wasn't just related to donations from wealthy patrons. And so, you know, I, I I start off with the the beginnings of the industry of Mirrorwood because I think about that. It's like play, you know, Towns and cities exist for a reason, right? Uh, because of they're on a trade route, or because of a you know the geography of being close to water, or you know or, I went up to Alaska and it's like wow, there's not a lot of there's no farm fields out here because it's mostly stone, <laughs> and right. so and so if your your climate and your geography, all of these things play a role. So I actually go through a process that were as part of a world building process where I think through like, okay, who's in charge? Who's the political powers? You know, are they local? Are they from afar? Um, you know, do they have religions? You know, what's the magic? How do you know, how does that work? Um, who the, are, is there a class hierarchy, you know, that goes into it too. So I, I, I go through a process to kind of figure that out. And then often during that process, I'll think of characters that can help reflect those different elements. And so that way it, it reveals it to the, to the readers. I don't have to just dump all this backstory on them, but they meet characters that maybe represent these different facets. And that's where they learn about these things is the, the, the interaction between these characters. Well, and um, I was just about to read this question. You, you sort of um, answered it there. And is there a point that is too much world building for the reader? And I would expand on that and say, um, how do you balance world building with character development? And I think you just talked about that as using the characters to reflect the reality of the world. That that is that's really what readers are, are looking for, isn't it? That that they can care about the character and learn about the world all in the same uh, in the same passage. It's true. And I, I know I heard from, I heard that JK Rowling knows more than what she's revealed in the, her books. And yeah. I think that that's smart of authors to do the same thing, that just because you know something doesn't mean the reader needs to know it. And so yeah. you have to kind of parse through what's, um, what's going to be interesting, right? This is a story what will be interesting, not just for me, but for the reader who's, who's going to be doing it. Um, I think it was Terry Brooks who gave this metaphor that it's like we're making sandwiches and I'm bringing my best ingredients as the author for this sandwich. 
but I'm not providing all the ingredients. The reader provides ingredients too. The right, reader right. might be expecting peanut butter and jelly and I'm bringing turkey and avocado. And so sometimes there's a disconnect. I'm going to bring the best ingredients I can, but it might be not be the sandwich you're going to want to eat. And so it's important for me to, to kind of limit uh, and, and by limiting information, you want you want the, you want the reader to be begging you for the next info dump versus saying, whoa, I'm stopping reading because you just dumped the whole dump truck on me in chapter two. And yeah. you just yeah. can't get away with that. I just found characters is, is my way of doing that. And the other trick that I use as an author is I, I really rely on interchapter quotes. So in, in almost every book that I've done um, since my very first self-published, I really did this in Muirwood as a way of solving the problem is I use these little quotes before the chapters that will reveal something about the world, but it's in such small little bite-sized things. And they, those quotes are usually related to the chapter they're about to read. And, and so sometimes it, yes. as to what you're going to read. Exactly. So that way it's like, you always know that. So readers don't want to miss these. They don't skip them. It's not like a long epic poem that Tolkien used to do, right? right? It's like, uh, skip the poetry, skip the song, but it's like, oh, these are clues that Jeff's weaving in there. And that, that became a tool that I've used through most of my books uh, to be able to help feed the reader information that I can't find, you know, there's no, otherwise an, it'd be an awkward thing where suddenly a character in a pub is like, well, blah, 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 because I need the reader to know this. It's like, like, it seems contrived to me. So I can weave that stuff into my interchapter quotes uh, as a way of providing the information directly to the reader that they're going to need before it gets revealed in the story. That, that is a great tool that, uh, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a fantastic tool uh, for people to use. Um, Jeff, when you are conceiving of a character um, for a, a book or series, do you start thinking about this character's journey in each book or, or in an overarching series um, that that you want this character to begin at point A? And then by the time we get to the end of the series, we want this character to be to have progressed to, you know, point maybe not point z but further along uh the journey uh do you start thinking about the character's journey when you're first conceiving of the book absolutely in fact it that's the primary consideration for telling the story um i i had this idea of a of kind of a, of a character um, in, in a fantasy, a, fan, a fantasy story, this character and the trope that I wanted to kind of flip was, you know, it's like they're the chosen one, right? It's like you're the one who's going to defeat the the enemy. And in so many books I'd read, they're like, okay, I'll take my, I'll, I'll do it. And this character's like, heck no! It's like I don't want to be the sacrificial lamb. No, thank you. I'm going to run away every time the bad guys show up. I don't want to be part of that. And I, that, that appealed to me. And I had this kind of medieval fantasy setting for it. But then I took a trip to China. Uh, I was invited to go to China to, to be part of an author's um, uh, kind of a symposium thing. And it was super cool experience I had a couple of years ago. And after going to China, I'm like, I could tell this story of this character, but in a kind of medieval Chinese setting instead. And so the setting was totally arbitrary. I could have done it in either way, but it was the character that had inspired me. And then I learned that my, my niece has a, a form of synesthesia where she can smell people's emotions. And so, um, and I didn't even know she could do this until when I was coming up with that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that would be such a fun character attribute because no one could lie to her. You know, they could say anything they want, but she could smell the truth through how horrible it was. So I, I talked to her to describe wow. what it was like, and I made that part of the magic that she had where that way she's always running from people. Cause she's like, Oh, this is part of the bad guys, you know, team because she could she could smell them literally. Wow! And I just thought that, and so I ended up creating this uh, trilogy based on that that story idea. But it was that character arc of somebody refusing to meet their destiny, and then what would it take to persuade them? How much suffering would they have to see among the other the the, the people of the world to go? 
okay, it's even if I have to die, it's worth it because I just can't let all this bad stuff happen to other people. And I just thought, okay, I've got to keep ratcheting it up to the point where she's like, if I'm the only one who can stop this, okay, I'm going to, I'll finally accept it, but running from it at first. And so that, that journey is, is that the initial part of what I think of for the story. In fact, all the stories that I do. That is fantastic. Um, I've got a question from our community uh, from Loris that, that I want to pose to you. Loris says, my main character has a cold, mysterious personality. He doesn't say much and usually avoids engaging with others. How could I get the reader to feel connected with such a character who feels very distant to make the reader care enough in order to follow my character story? And let me just tag onto that. Uh, question from Laura says, um, one of the biggest challenges for writers is to create um, very three-dimensional characters. And sometimes that that can mean unlikable characters, or at least on the surface seem unlikable because they, they don't immediately resonate with the reader. But the longer we stay with them, uh, the, the writer can build things about this character that makes us realize they they really are someone I want to root for. Um, how do you go about doing that? That's a wonderful question right. because you run the risk. If you make them so unlikable that you know, people are turned off by them. Some people had a negative reaction to Katniss Everdeen, you know, right. uh, in, in the hunger games and stuff. I didn't have a problem with her, uh, but some people did. They're like, Oh, you know, it's like, she's good with a bow, but she's a jerk, you know, to, to, right. to so many people. Um, the way, the way I would recommend is because that in order to mitigate that risk, right? If, if this is the character that you want to tell the story, you need to be able to help the reader see how they got that way. What happened to them that made them that way? And, and people will react with empathy when, especially if they, they see something negative happen to somebody. So I try even in my villains, you know, in like in my um, story, The Queen's Poisoner, you know, my villain is a kind of a Richard III archetype, you know, Shakespeare and right. stuff. But I go into how did he become like that? Where you, it, it, because if you, the more you understand how the, somebody's emotional journey, the more a reader is going to feel sympathy for, for how they got there. And so that's what I would do. Cause you know, it's, it's going to be really hard if you're, if that's your point of view character and they're not inter interacting with others, um, you're going to be living in their head a lot. And if they're not likable, that means you're going to need to be finding those things that because at least maybe they, may, they might not be likable, but they're going to relate to, Oh man, if, if, if I was raised like that, if I had a dad like that, if I had a mom like that, if that happened to me, then I would have been the same way. And then they relate to them and now they're connected and that, and you got to establish that right at the beginning right. because otherwise they're, they're going to be like, yeah, not interested. Right. And then they're not going to be able to see the, the, that wonderful journey that happens. I think that book, the queen's poisoner um, was my entry to your work. Um, has, has that been the fact for a lot of readers? It, it seems like that's a extremely popular book for you. Is that the way a lot of people get into your work? It is. It's my highest selling book. That, that's kind um, of what I figured. For sure. So, so even though Muirwood was the thing that, that catapulted me in, um, it was the Queen's Poisoner that that has been my my highest sales and the one that has attracted the most audience. But it was such a risk. Like I remember my editor, like your protagonist is an eight year old boy. You can't <laughs> do that. Let's make him twelve. I'm like, no, he's got to be eight. Jeff. No one's going to want to read about an eight-year-old boy. I'm like, they're going to want to read about this one. <laughs> but I think it's that risk that you take with that character that makes it so compelling. Um, yeah. Because I remember reading it and and not being able to put it down. Like, this is the things that you did with these characters in that book is just phenomenal. And and sometimes you just need to take a risk like that. Well, oh, the character Owen from Queen's Poisoner was based on my youngest son. Oh, Wow even some of the details of the character, like a little patch of white in his hair. My son was born with a little patch of white in his hair and he was, has anxiety. And so, you know, the, the, the whole setup of this, this little anxious ridden boy being yanked away from his parents 
because his his dad did something foolish and you know betrayed the king and now this kid is a hostage and his life is on the line as a parent i'm like i would want to read what happened to this kid if i was a kid the kid's the hero of the story that's great but he's not going to be smart enough to out trick the king so i had to bring in the poisoner character as his, as his Obi-Wan, as his mentor, as the one who's going to help him figure out. And so you need, you know, even somebody who can't, you need that combination of talents and abilities to be able to, to pull it off. And because I took those risks and, and when my editor read the first draft of it, he's like, I love this kid. It's like, I am so glad we didn't change it. And we did a couple risk mitigation things. Like I began yeah, working yeah. with my development editor before I was done with the book. So we, we split it up into thirds. When I was a third of the way done, I sent it to my dev editor to say, give me feedback. How are we doing? And she's like, this is awesome. Keep going. So then I did the next third. She's like, we're, this is great. Keep going. And she would give me a little advice, you know, to how to amp up the tension even more. But we we did that mitigation. So that way it wasn't like this, you know, delivering this manuscript to him, you know, all these months later. And it's like, I'm not going to like this. He had a chance to kind of preview it and see where it was going. It's like, okay. And then they said, we're going all in. And they gave it the royal treatment on cover design and everything. And and it sure worked. <laughs> yeah, it's a gorgeous cover. That's for sure. Um I'm I'm glad that that a lot of people have come to your work through that. Um, the new series uh, that we mentioned when we first started chatting, uh, the dawning of Muirwood. Uh, you bring us back to the world of Muirwood uh, with the book that's out now, the Druid, and then the Hunted comes out um, early fall, and then the Betrayed will be the third book in that trilogy next February. Where are you taking us in this series? Um. I wanted to tell the origin story of where Muirwood Abbey came from. Um, I've, I've always, I've been a history major, you know, in college. I always loved to be able to, you know, visit old castles and monasteries and things like that. And, and I, I, I kind of had the idea of, I wanted the magic system to be more like a, like from Dungeons and Dragons, like a cleric system mm-hmm. where we're so used to wizards, you know, being able to, fireballs and lightning and Gandalf and Harry Potter. I wanted a more religious based magic for the system, kind of like a cleric and stuff. And so the, these, these abbeys are these schools where learners come to learn about how to use this magic that's sentient. And so how they approach the magic, if they want to use it for bad, the magic withdraws from them. And so I had this idea. And so I, you know, I, I literally threw my character, you know, who was an orphan raised at one of these abbeys where everyone else is allowed to learn to use the magic, but her, right. It's just, you know, I, I that sense of injustice I thought would hook people. It's like readers would empathize with a character who wants to learn how to read, but is forbidden to learn how to read. And I thought, Oh, they'd be so mad at that. Right. And so <laughs> that was where it started. And I'm like, well, I want to tell the story of how that Abbey was founded, how it, be, you know, it became, the Abbey became a character of the story. So how did it begin? And I, I dropped these little hints in the original books. And I thought, I want to explore it. And what's been really fun about the Druid is I've been able to weave in some of the mythology of many of my worlds into it. I see to show people some of the connections that they didn't already know about. And so it's been, it's been such a fun uh, fun adventure to write and it, it it already has more reviews in two and a half months than queen's poisoner has after like seven years so wow. it's been tremendously received and it might end up outpacing it someday so I've, I've been in shock that it's appealed to fans of all of my books and brought in new people too holy cats yeah. I, I just pulled it up and um I, I, this, this is no lie. When we first started recording, um, I had the Amazon page for the Druid up and it was 6,900 and some odd reviews. I just refreshed the page and it's at 7,035 reviews in, like in an hour. Day, I've just been like, oh my gosh, it's so cool. But just had what no idea it was going to be received so well. That is amazing. That is amazing. Um, I have, 
I I have the Druid uh, on my Kindle and I've begun reading it, but I haven't finished it yet. And I think on this long Father's Day weekend, that's what I'm going to be spending my time on. Um, Sounds Jeff, good. This has been an hour already. It feels like we've been talking 10 minutes um, and we always have such great conversations. Uh, but thank you for joining me uh, in the Storycraft Cafe today. If if people are just discovering you and want to get into all of the great stuff that you're up to, um, where can they find you online? Um, I have a website, jeff-wheeler.com, where I have different, like, my different worlds explained. So if you want to just explore the worlds without actually having read the book yet to kind of see what kinds of characters are there. So it's a good, kind of a good place to go. I also have a suggested reading order because I get that. When you have 35 books, like, where do I start? You know, I, that's my most landed on page is the suggested reading order page. I'm on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram as well. Uh, Jeff, if, if someone says this weekend, I'm going to grab a Jeff Wheeler book, um, which book would you, would you tell them to start with the Druid or is there a, a better place to enter into your world? Um, I always recommend the Queen's Poisoner just because it's been my top selling book. Maybe not for long, maybe not for long, <laughs> but a lot of new people have found me with the Druid and, and it represents, I mean, all these millions of words I've written, learning the craft, learning how to tell a story. It's a great story. So, um, and the fact that there's other books coming but aren't out yet, you could start there and then start visiting some of the other worlds uh, while you wait for the next one to come out. Be a pretty great audio book to listen to while laying by the pool this weekend, that's for sure. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for, for joining me today. My pleasure, Hank. Good to see you again. <laughs>